With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So welcome everybody to the latest edition of Macklin's Take. And it is the day of the weigh-in for Dillian White against Oscar Rivas, and it's quite a rainy, quite wet Greenwich we find ourselves in at the moment. We're all just killing a bit of time before we head off to Spitalsfields Market later on to see the big men weigh in. The lighter weights have got on the scales just down about 10 yards away from us inside the hotel restaurant. And I'm very pleased to say that joining myself and Matt Macklin today is somebody who's also killing a bit of time this afternoon because he will be in Oscar Rivas's corner later on alongside Mark Ramsey, he's somebody who works in a lot of corners all over the world. I'd love to see his air miles, they must be off the scale. That's great. <laughs> and he's had decades in the sport, steeped in it, amateur level and professional level, trainer, expert hand wrapper, cutsman, Ross Amber. Ross, you are pretty familiar to UK audiences, hardcore boxing fans you will have been for quite some time, but particularly recently because you've appeared in a number of of British corners and the last time we saw you, we we were there too, was on on June the 1st at Madison Square Garden where you were involved with Callum Smith and it was, well, in the end it was a hell of a night, wasn't it? It was a hell of a night and you know what I I remember? I remember on that night um, we were standing on on the ring apron for the introductions and whatnot. And I've, I've been in the garden before, but um, this was big, right? It was special, uh, the Joshua fight and everything. And we're stood, we're stood on the ring apron, and Paul Smith is stood right beside me, and I was just leaning on the ropes. And I turned to him and I said, can you imagine what it must have been like here on March 8th, 1971? I said, I might be standing actually in the same place, you know, Angelo Dundee stood right next to Ali. And, you know, it, it just, it's something, being in the garden on a heavyweight night is... Uh, is just special and um, working with with all the Smith guys and uh, and Gallagher has been a real pleasure. In in fairness, you know, credit be given, Joe was the first guy to uh, to to bring me over and and use me with with his fighters, which is you know a rarity that you'd bring somebody from the other, you know the Canadian from the other side to do the work. And uh, I was here with um, with uh, Isaac Chalemba the first night he fought Bellew. And uh, Joe asked Buddy McGirt 
if he would wrap Anthony Crawler's hands. And Buddy said, look, man, you don't want me. He says, Russ is here. You want Russ to do it. He said, really? He says, you're not wrapping Chalemba? He says, no. He says, Russ wraps Chalemba. And Crawler was the first British fighter's hand that I ever wrapped. And, you know, since then it's gone on in some great nights and being in Jeddah in, in, in Saudi Arabia with him against George Groves and uh, winning the w- winning that, that, being involved in the Super Series with Callum. I had Usyk and Callum as back-to-back winners, the first two winners of the tournament, and I was in their corner. So that's been kind of special. So my relationship with the British scene and, uh, and the fighters and getting to play snooker here as well, you know, it's just been a dream come true for me. Well, I did read in your in your column in Boxing Monthly on the Boxing Monthly website that, that you beat Liam Smith, that you, you took him to the cleaners from what I hear at American Pool the first night you went out. And then in, in typical professional athlete fashion, he zoned in the second night. He wouldn't talk. He wouldn't discuss it. <laughs> yeah, he was just all business, beat you. And then once he got the victory that night, he was, he was, he was willing to kind of converse and, and, and open up as he had done previously and that's that's typical you lot Macklin it really is you know you lose <laughs> at anything and you will just you know then you have to get it the, back the competitive nature kicks in there and you need revenge redemption <laughs> absolutely miserable sod that he was that whole day but this is something that's we've been we've been playing everywhere we go together we play we played in we found a snooker club I found a snooker club in Saudi Arabia in Jeddah we played there uh, that that was the switch. That was the other way around. The first night we get there, they had been there a while. It was my first uh, first day I landed, and he beat me five four. And by time I came down for breakfast the next morning, the entire hotel was aware of the score that he had beaten me. Right? So okay. So <laughs> we go back out the next day, and I did him six one, and uh, I think five one or, or, or six one, and. Uh, Woke up for breakfast the next day, and I said, well, did, did the word get around tonight? You know, and he said, oh, he's, he's not happy. He's not happy. So we've had this rivalry going, and we just take it to everywhere we can. And, it's you know, it's a lot of fun that all the guys are in New York. They're all going out to the different clubs. Me and him are sitting in the cab driving out to Queens, New York, to one of the most famous pool rooms in America called Steinways, which is where all the players who play are at that place. And he wanted to go and play uh, pool. It's the first time we played American pool together and played some 10 ball. And uh, it's fun. And so I'm c- competitive with it as well. And he really, boy, he wants to win. This guy's, man, you don't want to play golf with this guy. He must be miserable around 18 <laughs> holes. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I think he's actually one of these people, Liam Smith, who, who's pretty good at, at any kind of sporting pursuit. He turns his hands to Paul Butler. Uh, a stable mate of him. He's another one, you know, really good golfer, good snooker player. I heard he's a good snooker player. Fun. Yeah, he's the next yeah. on my uh, my well, list. Yeah, yeah. I think you might you, you're going to have to rack up some practice hours. I think to uh, to compete with him, from what I hear. But something like that, you know, is it, when you're on the road a lot, which you are, and you do a lot of travelling, you need these things. You need ways of, of of passing the time, of 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 killing time in a lot of ways, and. You have done an enormous amount of travelling. You, you do do an enormous amount of travelling. And some of the fighters you're working with, you, me, you mentioned Crawler there. You would have been in the other corner uh, for the fight against, against Loma, unfortunately. Against Vasily Lomachenko. And how, how was that experience was given awful. that you know Anthony? It was awful. That was one of the worst feelings I had being in a corner. You know, like uh, when you're in the corner, you want to be there, you want to win, you want to try to win, you, you cheer. You don't necessarily have to have hate or animosity for the other guy, but you want to win. You know, you're there. 
And uh, that was one of the most uncomfortable moments I had. Like, I really felt bad because of my relationship with, with, with Anthony, my relationship with Joe, with the Smiths who were there as well. It just felt so... It, it wasn't the enjoyable experience it was, for example, beating Regondial. Because beating Regondial was a personal thing for me. I went to camp a month in advance to make sure that everything was going to be right. That was one fight I did not want to escape from, you know, and, and anything go wrong. That fight was a fight that was personal to me. I wanted to win that fight. I wanted to, like, I had reasons you know, to win that fight. The, the, the crawler fight was just a difficult situation to be in. And, uh, you know, I, in a way, I'm glad, I, I wish that they'd have called it in the corner, you know, not let him out for that, for that round um, and get that final knockdown. Uh, I'm not sure that Anthony was deserving of that. But, uh, you know, it, it wasn't one of those, yay, we got the win, you know, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel that at all. I got far too much re- respect and love for, for crawler to have felt that way. So what's it like, you'll, you'll get asked this a lot, what's it like working with, with Lomachenko and Usyk? And, and how did that come about? That's what really interests me because I, I follow the amateurs closely, have done for a long time, and, and Usyk and Lomachenko, and there's Vozdik now as well. I mean, that team in 2012, they got two other medals, Berinchik and uh, Celestiuk. But they're, once they turn professional, basically, it seemed to be an extension of that Ukrainian national team in a way that they did everything and they're trained by Anatoly Lomachenko so how did you become part of that because I would have just thought that they would have had everything just set and down and they did it the way they did it and that would be you, it. you would think right and uh, in fact I called both of uh, Lomachenko and, and Usyk's gold medal wins for CBC television for our, our BBC <laughs> Back home, uh, I've been doing this since 1988. I've worked alongside Richie Woodhall, who was doing it for the for the Beeb for for years. We our our booths would be side by side of each other, and I was calling fights, and I called fights for for him. Uh, for, for, I called both their wins, including you know be, being on air saying that this guy is by far. This was in 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 Beijing saying this guy is by far the best fighter of the tournament you know I had him the Val Barker winner uh from the outset you know that's how good he was and that was it like there was nothing more than that and I never expected my path to cross uh to cross with them um and then what happened about five years ago it was during it was just before the first Jean Pascal Sergei Kovalev fight in Montreal um, I got a call from uh, from uh, Lomachenko's manager asking if I would come and maybe wrap his hands because he's been having hand problems. He, is, he had had, I think, three fights up until that point, and in each time he had suffered an injury, and in each time it had been in a different brand of gloves that he had suffered an injury. They tried three different brands of gloves. Three times he got hurt. And so um, I said, well, look, why don't you you know bring him down by to the – to the Bell Center where the fight was going to take place. Let's get him in the dressing room. I'll tape him up and uh, see how he likes it. So um, Jean was the main event, so the dressing room was empty. So they came down early. So he, he came in the dressing room. I wrapped him up. I showed him the gloves we had, and he liked it. And they said, okay, you're coming to the next fight. And uh, I did. And uh, I believe the first, I think that fight, if I'm not mistaken, if my memory serves, might have been the night on the Pacquiao Mayweather card. 
that might have been the first one that we did when he fought on the undercard of that event. And um, everything went well. We made the gloves for him. I taped him. No issues in the fight. The fight, I think, went 10 rounds uh, before he stopped the guy. So he had plenty of work. And um, he turned around. We got back to the dressing room, and all he did was turn around to me, and he extended his arm, and he said, he said, welcome to Team Lomachenko. And I've been there ever since, and I've, been, I've wrapped him and made gloves for him for his next 10 fights, of which he stopped everybody except Pedraza. And uh, Pedraza, he dropped twice. So, uh, you know, and with, when I tell you this, without not even as much as a bruise on his hand. And uh, that's how I got the job, and that's how it transpired over to Usyk because Agus uh, uh, Klimas's management had Usyk, and he brought me in. So I worked with a couple of Agus's guys, but that's where it came from. That's where the relationship began was with Agus and uh, and Lomachenko. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids! Hey, everybody! Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! All these aspects, Matt, are so interesting. And, and, and when you look at boxing training and the way it's developed over the last few years, and there's always lots of talk about strength and conditioning, there's always lots of talk about nutrition, there's always lots of talk about hyperbaric chambers and all these other kinds of things, but your tools of your trade are your hands. And having somebody who can wrap your hands expertly and take the pressure off them and keep them ship shape and keep them doing this unnatural thing that you need them to do, it doesn't get any more important than that. Oh, they, 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 your tools are your trade and any craftsman has got to look after his tools and I had a lot of trouble with my hands early on in my career and then eventually started wrapping them properly and, and had less trouble I still had you know, a knock here and there you're not, you're not, they, weren't, uh, they weren't given to us to punch people in the head with you but, know, uh, but you know if you look after them properly and you're punching correctly you, you, you know, you, you've got a good chance of uh, ending a fight and they'll be okay um, well, certainly Ross has got a reputation for being one of the very best the reason the business I know he's a perfectionist I know he does an absolute five star job on the most seat I've seen them myself uh, also Kutzman but I want to just mention as well that Ross isn't just a Kutzman and a hand wrapper he's been involved in training with fighters and, and, and guarding their careers too I, my first uh, when I first met Ross we, we, we talked about uh, David Lemieux Lemieux was a uh, cutting through everybody at one time he really big hype he was getting HBO dates he was basically destroying everyone inside three rounds uh, got thrown in fairly early then against uh, Marco Antonio Rubio got stopped I think in seven rounds then in his next fight went in against Joaquin Marcin which I think they thought would have been a win it should have been a, a, a comfortable-ish win but he got he got beaten and beaten, beaten well over the 12 rounds and then I was particularly aware of the, the backstories of these things because I fought Alcine in Alcine's next fight, and it was actually my comeback fight from the last against Sergio Martinez. And you know, I knocked Alcine out in a round. And there was a couple of times I was matched with Lemieux, but me, me and you spoke. Was I think it was out in Las Vegas? I'm, I think, or maybe it was in New York about Lemieux. And you were telling me how he started believing his own hype, and yeah. 
other people got involved and you know his career went went sideways that's exactly that's exactly right I I, I I i coined it as a puncher's disease uh you know he started thinking man anybody i hit i'm gonna knock out um i had david since he was nine years old but my first my initial impact on the scene as a boxing coach and what i had been doing training fighters uh, goes back to I started in 1979, but my first world champion was Otis Grant, and against Ryan Rhodes. That's right. So uh, that's where you know that was my first one, and I had Otis since he was 13 years old. So I'm I'm kind of proud to say that the guys that I've I've trained and developed and worked with I've had from the cradle, you know, uh, from the crib to the championship, you know, uh, which which is it, it, I'm kind of proud of as a coach because there's not a lot of fighters who end up being able to do that, you know. No, for me that that's a real coach. You know, anyone I don't want to say anyone, but lot, lots of good coaches can in. Inherit. There's an old saying, yeah, there's an old saying, good fighters make good coaches. And, and, you know, if you inherit an Olympic gold medalist, he's probably supposed to go on and become world champion. He should. If he Just, doesn't, you screwed it you up somewhere. I mean? so, yeah. But if you get a guy from, if he's first, he doesn't know how to throw a punch Correct. from a kid. And you bring him all the way through. Like Brendan Ingle did it yeah. several times. So Correct. to me, that's a real coach. Absolutely. That's a real driver. I've always admired that. And that's the kind of people that I've followed in, in, in my day, you know, those were the kind of guys like when, when before Emmanuel Stewart became the star that he was, you know, that's a guy I emulated because he used to go to the amateur tournaments that we competed in and he'd bring his team, you know, as an amateur team. And he started having, you know, the Kronk was starting to emerge as, you know, one of the best, strongest gyms in America. The other guy, which you guys will know very well, maybe not favorably, but to me, he was all be a dear, dear friend, uh, was the late, great. John Davenport, who who handled Lennox's career almost all the way right through to his uh, world championship win, and then they got rid of him for whatever political reasons. He had issues being over here in the UK and whatnot. But him and Harold Knight have been lifelong friends, and I mentored under them. You know, and, and these were guys that developed from the cradle. You know, like they weren't, uh, you know, drafting guys. They weren't signing guys up, paying a lot of money, and getting great fighters in. They were, you know, building them from the ground up and that's something that I always emulated as a as a coach and wanted to do but with Lemieux getting back to Lemieux you're absolutely right um, for me the thing that when you, no one would believe me when I tell them this but the people who know Lemieux and know my background and whatnot when Lemieux came to the gym he was so not gifted in fact he lost his first four amateur fights and, like, he was not very good, you know. He was just a little kid trying to learn. He wasn't a great athlete, you know. He was just trying to get it in. He, he, we, we used to make a joke and say, if we showed Lemieux something in January, we're hoping that by June he has an idea of what we're talking about. You know, that was, the, that was what we were dealing with, right? So, so he wasn't a quick learner then? Not at all. <laughs> not by any stretch of the imagination. Then, at a certain point, when he hit probably around 16, 17, a little bit of punching power started to develop. This did, didn't happen when he wasn't a little kid could punch hard, but he grew into punching hard. When he came to the gym, like I said, I had him since he's nine. By the time he was like 12 years old, he had the keys to the gym. He would open the gym and close the gym. He worked hard in the gym. He was the first one in, last one out. We'd, he'd box with anybody. He wanted to learn. He was like a sponge. He would absorb information. It didn't always, you know, attach right away, but, you know, he wanted to learn. And he worked really, really hard. And we saw that there was some tremendous potential there. And I was a little bit worried of what was going on, the amateur scene at the time, the way the national team was being run, the way IEBA international tournaments were being run. It was still the computer scoring system at the time, which was 
garbage, right, as, as we all know. Um, and so I got a little worried about turning him, leaving him on the national team and putting him in the hands of other guys as such a young, hot prospect, you know. So that's why we made the decision to turn him pro where we felt we could develop him early. We'd be able to pick the opponents that we needed to move him along and so forth. So we did. So he turned pro at the age of 18 years old. And I specifically said at the press conference, and you can ask Yvonne Michel this because we were talking about this. So I specifically said at this, I said, I'm not here to rush this kid's career. I'm taking a Julio Cesar Jr. approach to this kid's career. He's, he's not going to be involved in any world title fights until he's had 40 pro fights. Because when he's ready to fight for the title, you know, he's going to be ready. When a title shot comes around, he's going to be ready. And I said that at the press conference. And if you look back at his career, I think he was at fight 35 when he beat and damn for the title. So that many years earlier, I knew that that's where we were going to have to be at for him to win. But the powers that be along the way, including Yvonne, who's partly to blame for that, you know, all, you know, oh, well, we got this fight. No, I was in Yvonne's office pleading with him not to take the Rubio fight. I said, we don't need it. I had been in there, his office, a year before that, saying that David has stopped training. You know, he comes in when he feels like it. He comes in just a couple of weeks before the fight to take the weight off because he thinks he just has to hit everybody and knock them out. And he said, no, no, don't worry. He'll be fine. He's going to beat Rubio. I said, that's going to be the worst thing that'll happen, you know. And, and for five rounds, he battered Rubio from pillar to post and then ran out of gas. And uh, that's what happened. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, he, he started believing his own hype. It's a really interesting subject, the pace at which you bring fighters through. It's something we talk about a lot. And particularly now also is there seems to have been a trend recently over the last few years for fighters to stay amateur quite a long time. In the UK, I think that's probably because the setup now is much better and they get good funding and they're well looked after. But we have, take the last crop, Rio 2016, they're pretty much all of them in their mid to, to late 20s. And it means that they don't really have time to make any mistakes and they possibly get pushed into things a little bit quicker than they're necessarily ready for. We've seen some other fighters recently, Matt, someone like Devin Haney, for example, who turned pro when he was 16. Matchroom USA have signed a few other youngsters who are turning pro at 19, 20. Dalton Smith at 22. He was well-placed with the GB setup. It's an interesting argument. I'm not really sure whether you can come down it and say one is better than the other. There's pros and cons to both of them. Yeah, I mean, there's not an absolute right and wrong uh, to this argument, but... Um what Russ said there was interesting, and I remember, I can't remember who said it, I think it might have been my old amateur coach said it, when the four two-minute rounds and the computer scoring was at its peak, he said, you know what, amateur boxing has now become a bad apprenticeship for professional boxing. It is. You know, the four twos, you know, it was, he said it's become a game of fencing. You know, the three, you know, and, and, and now, it, you know, it's gone back to the three-minute rounds, three threes, the, the, the manual scoring. You, you're always going to get bad decisions. You're always going to get bad decisions in, in the professional boxing. And you'll get decisions that some people were bad, but in hindsight, was it bad? It was close. It was subjective. Did you like the work rate? Did you like the power shots? You know, it's, it's going to be a, a, an, an ageless argument within boxing. But I want to go back to something there that, that, that Russ said. And, you, and this is when we're going back to the real trainers and what you see. You know, training a fighter, managing a fighter, training a fighter, you're not, you're not thinking about eight weeks or ten weeks or six. You're thinking about ten years 
Where's this gonna? Where's this guy gonna be in three years? Where's he gonna be in five years? How long is it gonna take? When do I think he'll be ready for this level? When do I think he'll be ready for that? And then you gotta have that plan, and and and, that, and you can be that can change because it's you know it's a results based, bit performance based. Uh, business and if he's performing better than we thought then we move a bit quicker than we thought but you've got to sit down and have a plan in your head and you've got to be able to have that foresight that vision to see where he's going to be now I know a guy he's short and he's stocky but he's got he's strong and he's got a good head movement well I'm gonna, he's going to be this kind of a fighter so we're going to work this is where I need to build him to so these are the kind of drills we need to do but he's not going to become the finished article in 10 weeks or, or six weeks it might take it might take six years you know if he's 20 years old and he turns pro it, he might be 26 27 but before he's at his peak so then you've got to match make you've got to pick the right fights and you've got to do that according then you've got to market him properly where's he going to go down well what's his fan base going to be do you know what i mean there's so much that goes into building a fighter developing a fighter in terms of his style his strength all that kind of thing, having the patience and, and, and the experience, but then and then managing the fighter, picking the right fights. That 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 kind of, that has to coincide with it and go alongside it. But it's it's almost a lost art, really. There's not there's not that many guys doing that now. Most people want people are so impatient and people are comparing on social media and they're thinking, oh, this guy's got this strength and conditioning guy and this is what he does. And do you know what I mean? They're comparing and and, and he's had a good win, so it must be because of that. Maybe he had a good win because he's a good fighter. Maybe, or maybe what he's doing is wrong, but he's won in spite of, not because of. And there's not, there's, there's not that many guys now around that are real proper boxing guys that have the experience and knowledge and the patience to have the vision and understand this is a vision. Well, this vision is going to take me five or six years to play out. You know, but one day at a time, we, we start moving towards it. But... You know, TV networks, promoters, they want them results yesterday. They want it now. You know, like you say, David Lemieux rushed into a fight. I remember having breakfast in Youngstown back in 2009 when uh, in the December I was over there uh, at one of Kelly Pavlik's fights. Coming down to breakfast, uh, was sitting down there, me, Gary Hyde, Bob Arrow and Freddie Roach were chatting, having breakfast, talking boxing. And I was obviously looking to, to get involved in the Pavlik fight. I realised this fight wasn't on HBO. And I was like, so I said to Bob... Uh, I thought you had, I thought it was an exclusive deal with Public with HBO and you know this obviously is on your own pay per view platform. He said no. He said well, he goes I never do an exclusive deal again. He said because you know every fight's different. We had he goes years ago. He said HBO were throwing all this money at us. They wanted to make uh, Oscar de la Hoya against I think it was Gennaro Hernandez. Was it yeah, I think it was Gennaro Hernandez. And um, you know so I go to Bruce Trampler and said uh, look. I want to make this fight against Hernandez. And he said, no, uh, not yet. He said, well, you know, HBO are offering this much money, this much money. He said, no, I said, I don't, I don't like that fight just yet. So he said, you know, we, t- we took, uh, but they were, they were adamant that he was going to fight for this world title. So we took an, a different fight against uh, Jimmy Bradell for the WBO version. He wins the fight. I think moves up in weight or, you know, or makes a defense, moves up in weight. Anyway, anyway, a couple of fights down the line, they move up in weight and they bring Hernandez up in weight. And Oscar the lawyer beats, beats him, him. Right. you know. And they were saying, he says, look, in reflection, if we'd have, if we'd have been dictated to by the TV network and rushed into that fight, maybe Oscar wouldn't have beaten Hernandez at that point, you know. And then Oscar wouldn't have gone on and earned all the millions that he did. So, you know, matchmaking and and, and there's t like there's TV networks 
and, and, and they have their say and they want what they want to do things on their top scale but and their interests and their interests but if you're the you're the manager or the, you know the promoter the manager the trainer on that side of the fence then you've got to do what's best for your fighter we all want the same thing but they just everyone wants it on their time scale but they're TV people we're boxing people yeah. so you know there's some some decisions are boxing decisions and um, you know that, 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 that really stuck out I mean I thought you know it, you know guiding a career picking the right fights you know avoiding the right fights as well you know the certain styles that your guy just doesn't deal well with and if I don't need to fight him then why am I going to fight him you know one day if he's mandatory or something that's a different situation but on the way up if I don't need to fight him I'm not gonna you know but and it's but it's having that that boxing experience and knowledge to, to navigate around these things. I think that's something. I think I think Matt's right. I think that's something that's definitely lost in today's game. You know, the the networks have taken over uh, fighters now. I think one of the other reasons why we're seeing certain fighters being fast tracked is because probably because of the lack of depth in each of the divisions, you know, like it's almost relatively easy to make your way in. If you're guided right, you can get to 20-0. You, know, you can get moved into a top 10 ranking, not just because you're good, but simply because there's not a lot of guys better that are around. Now, the great fighters that are around in each of the champions in the weight classes, they're great and probably would have been great at any era. But the depth of fee, the depth in each of the weight classes, I think, greatly has changed. You know, I think of fights that we started seeing on HBO would never have made HBO highlights, let alone been the main event on an HBO card, you know, years ago. I don't think we would have, we would have seen that. And another thing that I think we're seeing, getting back to what we were saying about the, the amateurs, back in the day when you, pre or 1988 and before, when amateur boxing was really an extension of pro boxing in terms of styles. The scoring was the same, styles was the same, everything was, was done pretty much the same, and people trans, tra, uh, transferred over very easily from the, uh, from the amateur ranks to the pro ranks. That was easy. But, and, and, and guys had extensive amateur careers where they were fighting the Russians and the Cubans and the East Germans, and you were having all this experience that you were able to carry it on into the pros, and it made a difference. And the whole field was a very strong field in the, in the pro ranks. And proof of that is that the fighters now from the Eastern Bloc countries that are emerging, with their extensive amateur background, they are so good and have had so much vast international experience. Not only were they taken part, but where they've dominated on the international scene, they're able to be fast-tracked and they're turning pros and in a short period of time, you know, are winning titles. Like, look at Lomachenko. I mean, he hasn't had 15, I think he's at 15 now and has already won three world titles. You know, uh, Usyk has unified all the belts inside of whatever 15, 17, 20 fights that he has now, which was unheard of before. But that's because their amateur background was such a pedigree and they were able, they're able to be fast-tracked into, the, into an already thinning pro ranks. But it's a balance, isn't it, Russ? Because there's some guys then, you know, that turn pro 18 uh, with not such an extensive amateur background, but they've got a good manager and a good trainer who knows the game. And he has to be moved. And he knows you're 18, you haven't got your mind strength, you're not experienced, this is a slow job, and he's not looking to get you fighting for title straight. He knows that it's probably a five-year plan before you even get there and he's going to pick the right fights and it, it, you know but that's that's a lot of uh, TLC tender yeah, love and care there's a lot of time and effort and care that goes into navigating that over the next absolutely. five years and, and it's back to what we said you, when you look at a fighter it, I, I've never trained a fighter but I've managed several but if I was training a fighter 
I know that I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, where are you going to be in five, six, seven years? And now I start building towards that. Yeah. You know, that you make, if you, in Madison Square Garden, you go into the foyer, there's a model of Madison Square Garden before it was built. Now, in, in order to build Madison Square Garden, that's to know what they were trying to build. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> you know what right. I mean? That's so right. you needed the model. You know, you yeah. make the plan and you do the model. You design it. You make the plan and then you build sure. the model. Now, this is what it's going to look like when it's when it's built. Yeah. And then you start building it. You know, and that's the same with a fighter. You've got to have a. If you need to know what you're trying to build. You've got to have that vision, and then yeah. and then you've got to accept and realize and understand. That's going to take me five years to get to there. Yeah. And now. I can't. I can only achieve so much in ten-week segments. Yeah, you know, and then he's got to mature physically, and you know, it, it takes time. And sadly, Matt, you know, a lot of people don't have that vision. They see the fighter they have in front of them right now. Okay, yeah, we'll take this fight. Yeah, we'll take that fight, and they just reject or accept fights based fight on whether fight. they think they just fight go to fight, fight to fight. Fight to fight. They think they can win. Yeah, good fight. We take it, but nothing with a plan down the road of how it gets better. You're right. I mean, listen, I've been in this game for four years i've seen a lot of changes the, the, the game that i see now is way different than the game that, that i came into you know it's it's far different especially in the maneuvering of fighters a perfect example for me of how the the the, the, the game has changed somewhat and in, i've been lucky that i benefited from that when when i started coaching fighters training fighters it was 1979 i was i was officially i was 18 years old when i started i turned 18 in march and i started coaching in september and i was working with a, a middleweight from the united states named vinnie curdo who had a, a hundred pro fights i started working with him that was my start so i got blessed quickly with a with a great fighter but in those days it was commonplace that a trainer learned to be a cut man and he learned to wrap hands. I mean, this was part and parcel with your job as a trainer. You're a trainer. You have to know how to do this. You have to deal with cuts. This wasn't a specialty position. It wasn't a specialty position. Doing pads wasn't a specialty position. Now, doing pads, being a cut man, strength and conditioning coaches, uh, uh, trainers, hand wrappers, they're all specialty positions. Well, as a result of that, now I got a reputation of being a good hand wrapper, but that's just because the trainers have not learned their trade properly. Because <laughs> you should be able to wrap your hands. You should learn that. It should that. be a given. Yeah, it should be a given. Yeah, how could you not? How could you be a trainer and not be able to do that? So, I mean... Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Last night, uh, Russ, there's a, uh, a guy who I, I, I know well, I'm friendly with him. Um, Jason Quigley, yeah, he got he got stopped. Uh, didn't get let out for the tenth round over in uh, Fantasy Springs against uh, Torino Johnson. You know, it was a step up in class, and Torino Johnson's a rugged tough guy, uh, but he dominated Quigley, and, and, and like I said, Dominic Ingle didn't let him out for the tenth round. And I tweeted earlier because it's frustrating for me because someone that I like, uh, someone that I rate, and someone that I'm watching from 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 the outside thinking how badly is your career being managed you know it's just been bad move after bad move after bad move and it's li- and it's that they're literally just going fight to fight to fight there's no thought process there's no vision there's no plan there's, ju- there's, there's no strategy there's nothing they're just 
get a date, there's a fight. Yeah, now you've had 10, now you're 10 and 0, now you're 12 and 0. But like, they're not maneuvering him, they're not, they're, there's no planning it. And, you know, I don't blame the promoters because they're the promoters, they're a big outfit, they're strong, and they've got networks, they've got a loads of fighters. I blame his management team because they're the ones that should be steering that ship. That's right. The promoter's the ship. But you need someone to steer that You're ship. You're absolutely right. And there's no one steering it for him. He's got a management team that really, they pay for his apartment out in, in California and they paid for the, the rent of a car and maybe a phone bill. That's not that's not a manager. That's a sponsor. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that, that's yeah. not a manager. An investor. That's yeah. an investor. Yeah, yeah, a manager yeah. someone that knows yep. where you're going to be in five years and start making that happen, you know, and start implementing that plan. And it's, it's, it's I look at him and it's, it's just someone that I think... So I shake my head and, you know, I actually reached out to Jason there a while back. I spoke with Robert Diaz, a golden boy. I told him my plan. I said, what I would do with Jason, I said, if he was training with me, and I think he should, and I was going to train and manage him, I was, I was prepared to do that. I said, I don't know about the situation with Shea Sports. I think their contract should be, obligations obviously has to be honoured, but we can work out, you know, a deal where, I, you know, I train him, I don't take anything as a manager until that has expired and then the management kicks in. But, I, but I'd, be, I'd be managing him anyway. I'd right, still be right. doing it. I'd still be guiding it. And I said, you know, I said, here's the plan. I said, we do two fights in New York, small hall show, BB Kings, only holds a thousand people, but we pack it out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you get the flags in there, the Gaelic football top. So lay, lay, lay. He goes in, he blows someone out in a couple of rounds just to create the hype, get it in the Irish immigrant echo papers in around New York, get the buzz going. Then you're penetrating the Irish community in New York. Let's get him out again six, seven, eight weeks later. Do the same again. Let's go up to Boston. Do the same up there. Then come back down. Let's go to the theatre at Madison Square Garden. Even go to the 3200. You know, and even if it sells two and a half thousand, right. you still headlined at Madison Square Garden. There's right. prestige to that. You know, he's had four fights in 12 months. He's penetrated the Irish community in New York. He's penetrated the Irish community in Boston. Boston he's got yeah. a fat, just, It's snowballing now. You know, he's not boxing in Fantasy Springs on ESPN Deportes. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, where it means absolutely where nothing. Where it means absolutely nothing. And he's called, his nickname's El Anibal. I yeah. mean, you don't have to be a marketing guru to realize <laughs> no. that that's a terrible move. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And do, you think there's, um, do you think now that more than ever there's this kind of temptation for fighters, promoters, managers to always want to try and go global everybody wants to box abroad everybody wants to kind of grow their brand that's a word I hear a lot which I absolutely despise in in all sporting circles sell out your local arena what's wrong with that that used to be what people that was the concept boxing is bubbles and you just got to be huge in one bubble you know Felix Sturm wasn't a global well you know he was known because he's yeah, a world champion but he was in the huge, boxing world but he was huge his bubble was germany yeah, he was right. mainstream in germany in yeah. germany when i fought him he was on the billboards yeah, going yeah. down the streets yeah, yeah you know what i mean so he was huge in germany now if he'd have fought in dublin he wouldn't have been huge no layman on the street would have known who he was but people on the street in germany knew him you know and that's always the way it's been and i think you know america is still the bubble but you know if you're like lucian Boutte. He was huge in Montreal. Yeah, Pascal, though, Jean Jean Pascal. Those early two thousands, yeah. Canadian boxing banging out the Bell Centre, the Pepsi Coliseum. Yeah. It was it was absolutely flying. Fly. And then full, full, full. Actually, I was there. an interesting aspect to that is Sowland used to get criticised. Matt was was just mentioning Felix Sturm there. Other promoters there too for just not taking their fighters outside of Germany. 
but you could understand why they didn't do it because they were huge in their own backyard. And, and then they should have, they should stay that way. Why would they bring them out How could they bring them out there? It ended Luchin's career, didn't it? That's exactly what I was just going to ask you. So why did they let Luchin Butte go to Nottingham and fight for Not only why did they let him go, they picked, they picked after watching him fight um, Andre Ward? No, the, 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 the Jermaine Taylor. They were ringsides, Stefan LaRouche and and, Lucia, and they picked Carl as the next guy, and they were confident that that was the guy that they were going to... They thought he had a style that was going to be slow and be enough to... I be, think if there was and e- I, ever and a fighter that you don't, don't pick, pick for a voluntary defense, it's Carl Frost. That's right. And, and it, it you know, iron chin, his career. heavy-handed, yeah. awkward as hell. You just he's just the king of the you don't pick him in a volunteer, unless you're getting major money in a super fight on well, pay per view. They must have made it that, but you know, you ended his career and to me I did, he was a cash cow back home. He could have fought he they could have signed him to fight the janitor at the Bell Center and there was gonna be they were they the people just not only did they knew that they knew he wasn't always fighting top of the line guys, but they loved but they him. Loved he him. was such a good guy and he is a good guy. You know, he was a real good guy. They loved him, they wanted to see him. And and you know, we talked about managers now you're right what you said there's no more managers promoters have taken on the role of manager and tv have become promoters and now they don't care like they don't care like their interest is not you and you know they're already in a conflict of interest because they're also signing your opponent and they're, they're signing pl- they're just playing a numbers game yeah, that's right that's right they, just, they, they a numbers game today there is no more protection of that they they have you and uh, you know that they do what they want with you and say well this is a fight you take and uh, that's it that's it. you have to take it and it's uh, it's changed the the the, the landscape of boxing has changed greatly, especially the, in the way business is done. Fights not made because fighters are on with different networks and whatnot. Like it's insane. Aram and Aram, Aram and King put together Leonard and Duran. You know, with both of them, and, and it was early in Leonard's career. Technically, you consider he he won the, the Olympics in '76. He fought Duran in '80. <laughs> that means he turned pro, developed, and fought Duran inside of four years. If King and Aram were able to make that happen, it's unfathomable now how things fights don't happen the fact that Kell Brook has never fought Amir Khan in this country is insane it's insane and that's just one that comes off the top of my head you know you're more interested in like you said oh these guys want their own brand they want their own logo they want the t-shirt they want everything except the fundamentals of being a great fighter and actually winning and becoming champion of your city, your county, your, you know, take over the area, then you move on to America and to conquer the world, you know, that they lost sight of that concept, I think. Is that why it's so enjoyable to be around the likes of Lomachenko and the likes of Usyk? Because they've got a very clear vision they seem to have and seem to have had from from the beginning as to how they were going to do things. Yes, they've got big promoters, but at the same time, they do seem to be steering that ship, or are they? Well, Usyk didn't have the big promoter. Usyk kind of went promoterless. He signed with K2 and like was they weren't doing it. They're trying to get him fights here and there. Different, uh, much different. They, these are guys that you've got the pony. They've got the pony in these guys. You could have done. You could have put anybody in the ring with these guys. There would have probably been so little guidance and steering that you would have needed to do because they were going to win. These are the rare and gifted few. So I'm not sure that that's a that that's a fair example. Yeah, they're, uh, not, they're not the rule. They're the they're exception, not, they're the to, exception. The rule. Yeah, yeah. They're the exception to the rule. I agree. I'm not sure that. You can use them as the example because they decided they're going for the big thing early and fast. 
and they had the ability to. You know, they were to, like Lomachenko wasn't just an Olympic champion; he was a two-time Olympic champion. And when he said in London, Beijing, he was worried about winning the title. He wanted to be gold medal champion. He said London. He said I just went there to get my medal because I just went through the motions to get my medal. You know when. when- Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. When Mick Conlon was looking was turned pro and we were doing a promotional deal, I, I was so pro top rank and wanted to at all costs to make that deal happen. And I knew the money had to stack up because there was a lot of money on the table for Mick. But I was trying you know, I was trying so hard even before we talked money with top rank to get it through to Mick that listen Mark listen Mick these are the people to be with because these have got the best matchmakers and these will develop your career they'll know exactly the right uh, pace to bring you along they won't hold you back and they won't rush you I said listen Kelly Pavlik was a five six year project before he become world champion maybe more you know Lomachenko couple of fights they know what they've got they've got the Bruce Trampler best matchmaker in the game you know they've got the most clout the most power they will get you the opportunities when you are ready and they won't rush you they're not short sighted they'll take their time they tick every single box twice I said Obviously, I'm going to get you as much money as I can, but I want you to understand that it's more important to be on the right ship with the right people steering it, and the money is secondary because the money's going to come when you become world champion. And you know, he listened to me, and, and actually, the money was great, and we got the great deal, and he turned pro. And, and you know, now he's mixed like the profile of a world champion. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? And he's uh, packed out the theater of the garden several times already. And you know, that was someone that listened to me. And then you compare that to someone like Jason Quigley, who. You know, ability-wise, is he any better than Mick? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's. Maybe he's not. You know, maybe he's better than Mick. I don't know. He's. Uh, but what what he's done is he's made bad move after bad move. Where Mick made the right moves, Mick listened. And I, I I have to say I don't know if you agree with this or not, Matt. From from the little that I know, it seemed to me that the best that one of the best moves that uh, Mick eventually did was to come back to Ireland and keep his training base here instead of being in uh, in California. Definitely. I think he's uh, he's learnt more, he's developed more, you know, he's... Uh, and he's happier, and I think, I think that absolutely. was always the thing. I think it was important for him to go and spend, when he was going to, his first couple of years, especially the first year when he was going to be boxing six times in the first year and he wants to be available for media TV shows and, and media and, stuff, yeah. I think it was important that he, he spent that first year at least out in America, in camp there, in somewhere like Manny Robles, who, you know... Probably wasn't really the coach for Mick, but he was—he had a good stable. There was Oscar Valdez. There was a future. There were champions in and around his way. Magdalena, who he can look up to, inspire against, and test himself, engage himself against. And I thought that was crucial for his apprenticeship, particularly in his first twelve months. But I think definitely coming back and getting settled at home was the right move at that time. No, I think so. You, you can encounter very difficult situations, though, and, and you've spoken Russ about almost the the battle you have to fight against 
TV against promoters, which can't really be won if you're a, if you're a responsible manager, trainer, trying to look after your fighter. But let's say you have a situation where your guy's going well, he's looking good, you're happy. But with these with these four belts available, all of a sudden a world title fight comes up, and you can get that fight. You've got the clout. You can get that fight. Let's say Anthony Joshua Charles Martin, you can get that fight, and you may well win it, and then you're a world champion. You can't step back now. But what do you do then? Because once you push through that bottleneck, there's no going back down, and that's something that. I'm not trying to get at Joshua. It's been kind of open season on him in recent weeks and I don't think a lot of it's been very fair. But you look at that scenario and, it, and it's been repeated with other fighters. You get the chance to fight for a world title. You might not be ready for it, but you can beat that guy. So you do it and then you're stuck there then. Yeah, but, and then you're not, you're not getting a chance to, to build the foundations and b- develop. It, it, it's development again, isn't it? You, you need a certain amount of time and a certain type of fights to develop. And you're right, there might be a certain particular champion or that one individual that actually you could probably beat Beam, him. that's right but what yeah. do we do then yeah, that's right because now we can't step back down now there's going to be mandatories now there's going to be shouts for unifications and you're suddenly stepping up to an air a level that you're probably not quite ready for because we need to develop this area and this aspect of your game but if we step up and we win which i think you could actually beat him but now we can't step back down and now we can't it's hard to kind of you can't really get back then. So it's, I think sometimes you just got to, and it's back to that word, vision, patience, time, understanding the job we're doing here. If we were, if we were to look at exactly the, the Joshua example, I really don't think that there was much done wrong in the movement and marketing and building of the Joshua fighter and or brand. Could he have gotten better? Could they have taken more time? The answer to this is could always be yes. You know, that's not a problem. But have the fact that it was Charles Martin at that time who that could have been an opponent you fought before the title. That could have almost been a stepping stone fight for you, really. So you get a chance to get that title early. It's with the IBF. You continue to take certain fights that develop you. The brand is growing. He's selling tickets. That probably was all done the right way. I think. I think the, so. I think if, if 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 Wilder would have been the IBF champion and they offered Joshua to that, you might have said, "No, nah, that's too. That's a big risk early." You know what I mean? I but I, that just happens. So sometimes you 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 have an opportunity to grab the title because you don't often get two kicks at the can. You know, so you you might have to have taken, and then you got to be sure that when you now fighter becomes good, he gains confidence. You get him the right fights that build that confidence, even if you're do them in between the interim between your mandatories you keep him busy to get the stuff that you wouldn't have gotten you know you 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 should have gotten earlier but you didn't so you take it now and you try to develop them but at some point you, you your hat goes into the ring and i think it's fair to say that in any with any fighter at any level whether it's a kid from his first day in the gym to somebody who goes on to become a great world champion at some point we say the fighter hits the wall and that's as far as he's going to get. You know, for some amateur kids, they never make it out of their local county. For, uh, for some pro kids, they, they, they get by the four and six rounders. They hit an eight rounder. They're in a tough fight. Boom, they hit the wall. And you could see the kid's not going past there. And for everybody, there's a wall to hit. And some it happens after six title defenses. Some happens after the, after they win, right after they win the title. At some point, you meet that opponent, you hit that wall, and that's the limit you get. And the idea is to get what you best, the most money you can in the best development that you can and do the best that you can to maximize that all that time before you hit the wall. <laughs> I mean, I, 
I'm just looking at the clock. Yeah, I could I could talk boxing all day with you, Russ. And, uh, Me too. <laughs> and, and I'm sure we could sit down and do this again, hopefully, at another, yeah, another absolutely. time. But uh, I think we're going to have to shoot Andy to this uh, weigh-in now. Well, we do need to get to the weigh-in. We haven't got too much time left. But, um, yeah, it's a shame that we can't continue this at a greater length. But, Russ, there's... Do you think, just one final one, boxing always goes in kind of cycles. There are shifts, there are transitions... You had the boom period in, in Canada in the 2000s. People have been talking about British boxing being a booming industry over the last few years. Things seem to be changing a little bit, although America still seems to remain as the key market that people need to crack. TV is changing a little bit with streaming and things like that. At the moment, we seem to be in definitely in a period of transition, but one that's kind of not really like any other time I can think of I'll, I'll try to answer this as quick as I can because it's making me nervous that Matthew keeps looking at his watch all the time So, and this requires a, a deeper answer but I'll, I'll do the best I can I hope that the UK has not made the mistake and taken its fighters out of the UK and tried to market them onto a USA platform when you guys have, believe me when I tell you you have nothing to be ashamed of Nothing. To, you don't have to hold a candle to the U.S. marketplace and to what they do in boxing. I promise you, you guys do boxing better than they do it anywhere in America. Top Rank is the best organization in America. I'll give you that. Uh, and they understand the importance of having fighters that have good home bases. Terence Crawford being one of them. They recognize that. And I don't. The UK and Canada have often and, and Germany have followed this mold of building their fighters in home and and creating a fan base and selling tickets and putting it on TV and whatnot. Believe me when I tell you America does not have that here. So I hope there's not been a mistake here in the British boxing scene which will change the popularity that boxing has attained because I'll promise you this if you've ever been to Manchester, you know where the Manchester Arena is. Right across the street from the Manchester Arena is a 24-hour snooker club, which I hang out there and I love and it's wonderful. But while the fights are going on in Manchester Arena, the fights are being shown on Sky in that snooker club at the very same time, and yet the arena is packed. That would never, never happen in America, that you have a fight going on in Vegas at a hotel, and you can watch it on TV in your room or something. They would never do that. And yet, in, in the UK, we do, you guys do it, and you sell out, and people are in there because they want to be in the venue. I think it's the most dangerous and worst mistake when we keep thinking that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And the only reason the grass is often greener on the other side of the fence is because maybe there's more bullshit. That's the only reason why it's greener. Your homegrown base, to me, is still the best, the best recipe for success. And with that, Russ Amber has dropped the microphone and walked away. Because that is a perfect way to sign off, Russ. That, that was a great answer. That was a great answer. And we will definitely do this again because we know that we'll, we'll see you again um, sooner rather than later, hopefully. I hope so. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, and Matt, you're right. Yeah, we do thanks, need to Russ. get over to the, to the Wayne. Thanks for listening, everybody. And get onto iTunes. Give us a rate and subscribe and, and all that good stuff. And we'll be back again soon. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.